Welcome to the Imago Day Eastside Gathering Podcast. Good morning, family. If we haven't met before, my name is Carlos. I am uh, part of the pastoral team uh, for this beautiful, beautiful church. Uh, and so welcome, welcome. So good to see all of you here this morning. Uh, for those of you that are worshiping from your homes, uh, welcome. So good to be together uh, once again. Uh, it is, uh, it's been an eventful several weeks uh, for, for our community here at Eastside, to say the least. Uh, personally, for, for my family, uh, after two years of collectively doing our best <laughs> to avoid this, this virus, um, finally infiltrated our home, uh, one by one, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, soon after ringing in the, the new year, uh, both my kids, my wife, it was like two days apart, everyone managed uh, to get it except for my mother, <laughs> who somehow avoided it <clears throat> still. Um, she uh, credits that to uh, both Jesus and her homemade salsa. Um, <laughs> Which, um, if you've been in our home, when she's preparing this, and as soon as that blender goes on and those spices fill the air, it'll clear whatever disease you're going to get two months from now. <laughs> and so uh, she says that's why she didn't get COVID, was because of her salsa. So if you're interested in this uh, salsa, go to idcpdx.com forward slash salsa, and we'll, we'll, work, we'll work something out. <clears throat> but... Uh, I say that because thankfully all of our, all of our cases were, were pretty mild and, and uh, of course we continue to, to pray for those who've been impacted um, more severely, not just physically, but emotionally, uh, mentally, financially. Uh, we've all been impacted one way or another and we continue to fervently pray for, for a swift end uh, to this and that even while we're in the midst of it, that we wouldn't miss opportunities that the Spirit is leading us to where we can be agents of, of healing for, for people who are, are suffering. Amen. And so, uh, despite the ongoing challenging season that we're in and the limitations that we have um, to continuously adjust to as community, I'm, I'm so excited for this new year uh, at Eastside. Uh, next week, Pastor Mike is going to kick off a new sermon series that was going to take us through the book of Hebrews uh, titled Jesus is Better. And as you've already heard today and over the last couple of weeks that this afternoon we launched this six-week uh, leadership training leading like Jesus. Pastor Rick McKinley is leading this, us this afternoon to kick it all off. Um, and if you can tell, we have a really high view of Jesus uh, around here. And my hope as one of your pastors is that the primary reason you would choose uh, to belong to this community is because we have made Jesus the focal point uh, of our worship and of our discipleship, and that you are consistently growing to love him more and are becoming more like him uh, as a result. And that should be our gauge, our, our barometer, right? And so today, leading into this first week of our, our training sessions, I, I get to speak about two of my favorite subjects, uh, one, Jesus, and two, identity. Uh, we want to lead, live like practice into the way of Jesus, not primarily because of what he came to do. Uh, of course, die on the cross, pay for our sins, 
And please don't hear me in any way uh, diminishing that. Those events were the turning point in human history. But we will miss so much if we fail to see how much Jesus had life figured out and how much he had it figured out exactly right. Not just death, but life. Jesus knew how to live really well. And so we're not called to simply be believers in Jesus, but to be apprentices, to be students of Jesus, learning how to live from him. Because in doing so, we come to recognize that the good news, that the gospel, that living out the kingdom isn't primarily about going to heaven after we die. It is about partnering with God in heaven's coming here now while we live. And it's why Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're invited into this now. And so the question I want us to focus on this morning is, how is it that Jesus got so grounded, anchored, that he was never pushed sideways, that he was never knocked out of alignment when the stuff of life came up? Because it would have happened to him like it happens to us. And the Gospels show us that he didn't deal with this stuff out of his identity as God. He dealt with the stuff of life out of his identity as the beloved son of the father. That is, as a full human being. And so we want to learn from him. And it makes sense that it's best to do that by going back to the very beginning of his public ministry. And so I'm going to ask us to turn together to Matthew's gospel Uh, chapter 3, starting at verse 13. It'll be up on the the screen as well. Excuse me. To give some context here, Matthew's gospel has Jesus showing up at the scene where he is to be baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And I'm going to read through the entire passage, and then we'll walk back through each section together. So again, this is uh, Matthew 3, beginning at verse 13, and we're going to go into... Uh, the first 11 verses or so of of chapter 4. This is the gospel of our Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? And Jesus replies, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness And then John consented. Verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and resting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well Pleased, And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he says, throw yourself down. 
For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answers him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he says, if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus says to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Again, why should we take Jesus seriously and accept his invitation to follow him and to learn life from him? To come to him and rest, to come to him and take up his yoke, to take his way of life upon us. Why, why take him seriously? And so I want us to walk through the, the passage again, uh, beginning at the, at the first verse. Jesus comes from Galilee, way up in the backwoods of nowhere, down south to the Jordan. And it's important to note that a little later in this passage, Jesus will refer to John as a sort of bridge between eras, the last of sorts of, of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And as we find out soon after, it is when John is in prison that Jesus begins his, his public ministry. And there's such a fascinating exchange here as John tries to push back on Jesus because he recognizes who he is and says to him, I need to be baptized by you. He has an understanding of Jesus' superiority and the role reversal that he thinks should take place. But listen to Jesus' response. He says in verse 15, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. In Jesus' being baptized by John, a cycle is being brought to completion. This is an ending while it's also, like all water baptisms, a, a new beginning, right? There's death and then resurrection. But resurrection to what? And what we see here is it's resurrection to life, but to a life empowered by the Spirit. So Jesus is baptized. He comes up out of the water, and Matthew tells us, and then the heavens opened, and Jesus sees the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest, to rest on him. And there's an important distinction here that Matthew doesn't want us to miss. We read many times in the Old Testament that the Spirit of God would come upon persons for a specific purpose, for a specific time and task, to enable and empower them to do something. And then when that purpose was accomplished, the Spirit would, would leave Jesus, on the other hand, is depicted as the one on whom the Spirit comes and rests. You know, some translation says where the Spirit settles. It's not temporary. It's not for one task. It's permanent. And now this next part is where I want us to linger for a bit. Verse 17 says, and a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased. It's like that moment, remember, right? <laughs> like a Jesus, I was going to say Jesus' Simba moment, but it's probably Simba having a Jesus moment now. Oh. Never mind, I said that. I, 
I want to suggest that this language, that these words, this moment, is what enabled Jesus to do everything that he did for the next three and a half years. Because remember, at this point, Jesus has done nothing yet in terms of public ministry. He is simply the son of the father. Everything that he does flows out of who he is, not towards it. And this is significant in a culture like ours that defines identity by performance. I am what I do. And no, Jesus says, I do because I am. And do you hear that? Do you feel the shift? His identity is grounded in the love of his father. I am his son. I am his beloved son. I'm his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. This is the root of Jesus's ministry, not the fruit of it, right? The love of the father doesn't depend on Jesus's performance, nor does the love of the father depend on your performance. He's not more pleased with you when you do the right things than when you do the wrong things. And I want to say there that I'm not suggesting that, that God has no regard or care for our behavior and how we live our lives. What I am saying is that that doesn't change your identity and what is true about your belovedness in him. I'm a father of two children. They can do things that disappoint me, that I feel isn't reflective of who I know them to be, and it doesn't change that they are my child and my love for them. It is because he loves you. It is because you are his child that you can begin to live out of the core and the acknowledgement of that. And here, things get even more interesting. That same spirit that has come to rest, as we just talked about, to indwell on him. And doesn't that sound comforting like a hug from the Holy Spirit? That Holy Spirit doesn't come to protect him from anything. In fact, it's the Holy Spirit that leads him. Mark's gospel uses the word, drives him out into the desert for the explicit purpose of being tested. Listen here. Once you have a handle on identity, count on it being tested. Because once you know who you are as the beloved of the Father, it is important for it to be tested as a way of tightening our grip on who we are, because life is going to keep coming at us, right, from every direction. And that grip needs to be tested so that our identity is solidly based on relationship and not on our performance. So let's look a bit closer at these tests, these temptations. Now we're at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. Again, he's led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. And I'm going to stop here for a moment. If you were a Jewish audience, and you may know Matthew wrote his gospel primarily to the Jewish community, what stands out to you as you hear this? Again, the Spirit leads him out to the wilderness. What are the echoes for you, for your ancestors, who identified also as sons and daughters of God? 
you recognize what it means for Israel as children of God to be driven out to the wilderness, to the desert where their identity was tested. And what happens when they were out in the desert? It didn't go so well. And so now we have Jesus who, like Adam before him, Genesis 3, is tested in the garden. Like Israel, book of Exodus, being tested in the wilderness, both of these children of God, Matthew is expecting his audience to make this connection. And if it isn't solidified by then, he goes on to mention that the period Jesus is let out to, therefore, is 40 days and 40 nights. It's like the light bulb goes on. What Jesus is going through here, it's the same as that. And so the hope is that understanding that this Son of God is going to teach us how to manage, how to endure the deserts in our lives in ways that will be more fruitful than our previous generations. And that's why we follow him. That's why we learn how to live from Jesus. And then the text goes on to say, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then the tempter came to him. What does is, what is the timing of that arrival here make you think? Because it would, be, it would make sense to believe that the tempter comes at a point when he thinks that Jesus is at his weakest. It would make sense if we fail to understand that for Jesus, fasting was feasting. It was a way for him of building up capacity for the test that was to come. And I'm hoping at some point, I would love for us as a community to even get to, to sit more and explore the discipline of, of, of fasting because we've, off, um, we've so often relegated it to something that like, oh, I have to be miserable or I have to you know, endure this for, for God to be able to hear me. But it's, it's a building of, of capacity, of feasting on something that is not earthly, that is communion, that is relationship with the Father. And so the tempter comes, and remember, the tempter, the Satan, is doing what he's always done. He did this at the garden. He does this with Job, and now with Jesus, which is what? Testing identity. It's in his job description. It's all he knows how to do. And notice the tempter's language. If you are the Son of God. And hear the connection and the contrast between the father's language and the tempter's language in their voices. The father says, this is my son whom I love. The tempter says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. I mean, you're hungry. You can do this. And we know that Jesus actually can do this, right? He is able. He's, he's God. And when the children of God were hungry in the desert in previous generations, God provided food. So why not do it? We know he can do it. And all the tempter is saying, literally, prove it. If you're the son of God, prove it. Anyone here who is grounded in your identity ever feel a need to do that on a regular basis to prove who you are? Because if you do, what is it that you quickly discover? 
if you have to prove your identity, you don't really have a good grip on it. If your identity requires proving to anybody else, even to yourself, it might mean you don't really get it yourself. And so Jesus' response is indicative that he's been in communion with, that he's been feasting in the presence and the word of God for 40 days. And so naturally, at that moment, this is what he replies with. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, my relationship with my loving father is more nourishment for me than any bread that can come out of these rocks. Jesus chooses to anchor his identity in the word that he has heard from his father. Next test, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The tempter quoting scripture here, right? In other words, the tempter is saying, look, if you put yourself at risk, your daddy, whose beloved son you say you are, will come to your rescue. He has to, because scripture says he will. And this time around, the test is, if you are the son of God, make God prove it. Let him demonstrate the realness of your identity. And we too have various uh, uh, variations on how we do, the, do this too in our lives. Put God to the test. But Jesus is so solid on his identity and the word that he has heard from the father that that is enough for him. And just so we're clear, if that word from the Father alone, by itself, is not enough for us, nothing else ever will be. So for Jesus, the word has been heard, it has been believed, and with that firm grip, he responds, do not put your Lord, your God, to the test. And he's not referring to himself here. He's saying of his father, I'm not going to put my father and our relationship to the test just for the sake of your silly playground bully games. And then comes the third and the most difficult test. And this is at verse 8. The devil takes him to a very high mountain shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you if you'll bow down and worship me. All this I will give you. Now, do you think the devil was in, the, in his right to hold to that promise? It's kind of a trick question. As I was sitting with that, I'm thinking, yeah, for sure. Because who had given him all the kingdoms of the world? We did. Who is the image of God? Who has charge over the kingdoms of the world? Genesis 1, at the very beginning, makes this clear. We are. God says, you are my image. 
Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, bring it under submission to me. This is our world. And when you see the current state of the world and the way things are, it's because of choices that we have made. This isn't what our Father wants. This is what we have chosen. And so now the tempter, the Satan, to whom we traded our inheritance, to whom we gave our birthright as God's children, back in Genesis 3, my mentor likes to say, for an apple pie, is holding the deed and in his third test is essentially saying to Jesus, I know why you're here. You want your stuff back. You came to get your world back. No worries. I'll give it back. I will give it to you. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. In other words, I know what it's going to cost you to get this back. And what do we know that it's going to cost Jesus to get the world back under control of the Father? It's going to cost him his life. It's going to cost him his life on a cross. Friends, Jesus' final test is you can get what you came for without paying the price. I'll give it to you. Let's shake on it. And Jesus' response to him is, get the away from me, <laughs> Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So to recap the temptations, if you are the son of God, prove it. If you are the son of God, make God prove it. If you are the son of God, at least avoid the pain and the price of being who you are you can get the same outcome with no pain. You can get the same outcome, no pain. Is that not the temptation of our culture? And then the final verse, 11, the devil leaves him and angels came and attended him. And I love that image as much as it annoys me. Because <laughs> you can almost hear Jesus at that point being like, great timing, guys. <laughs> Where were you this whole time? And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, here's some of the questions I've had to sit with as I've pondered this text. Um, is it possible at times that non-answered prayers can be a part of this testing Prayers that aren't answered to my direct specifications. God, this was your deadline. Is it possible that at times leaning into the pain is a part of our testing? Our building of capacity for grip on our identity. Because it's not that he can't send help. We see that. He just did it. But if we are to learn from Jesus' experience the timing and conditions of that help, that rescue, may be part of our learning. And I'm going to say that's really, really hard. Are we still up for learning from Jesus, from following him, wherever it is that that may take us? 
because my sense is that there are deserts with all of our names on them. He said, if, if you are in Christ, we share that inheritance of being called sons and daughters and children. We share in that belovedness. We share in that identity of being pleasing to our Father. And if we're not grounded in our identity as received from the Father, we will be tempted to prove it. We will be tempted to make God prove it. And we will be tempted to avoid the pain and price of being who we are. And then what happens? When we lose our grip of our identities, it's self-destruction that becomes the rule of life. It becomes how we negotiate pain, how we negotiate insecurity. And in that loss of identity, we begin to self-medicate with all sorts of things, with all sorts of madness. And that list is too long. I don't need to go through it now, but we know what they are. We know where we go to hide. And so it's vital that we don't miss this because how is it that God teaches us to relate to ourselves and to others? What does Jesus answer when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love God with all your soul, heart, mind, and strength. Two, love yourself. And then three, then love your neighbor as yourself. How do we miss that middle part? The loving of self is literally the through line the bridge between the love of God and the love of neighbor. It has to go through you. It can't not go through you. And the hard reality is that when we've lost our sense of identity, we begin to blow ourselves up and then everyone around us in one form or another. And it can feel like you suddenly wake up one day or catch yourself in a moment of clarity asking, what have I done to myself? because our identity has completely disintegrated. And we don't want to live in that place, family. Why? Because then our core, the place that we live out of, react from, relate to others with, will be rooted in insecurity, in control, and fear of not being enough, that we're the wrong person in the role that we're in, that we're unworthy of affection or love or respect or dignity, and on and on and on. If you want to get a, ga a gauge on where you're at with this, if your identity like check engine light has come on, I would ask you to consider these questions. How much of our lives are rooted in fear, insecurity, anxiety, pride? A pride that thinks too highly of ourselves or a pride that thinks too lowly of yourself? And they're both pride. Because identity in Jesus is anchored in humility, right? A way this is most visible is in how we try to control other people. If you would just be this way, if you would just fix such and such about yourself, our marriage would be so much better. Our work environment would be so much better. And that need for control is the clearest indication that I have no idea who I am. So how does Jesus respond? How does he teach us how to deal with this? 
he may say, look, come with me into the desert for a while because it's going to hurt you to be who you are. It's going to cost you something to be who you are. So let's learn how not to depend on the external things, the noises, the socials, the voices to prop up, build up who we believe we are. That's what the desert is good for. Let's be alone for the purpose of being present with the Father. Let's be quiet for the purpose of tuning our ears to the Father's voice. Um, I'm going to call um, the worship team back up and our, our, our prayer ministry uh, partners to come and take our places. And, and as we close, I want to read just a short paragraph of something that, was, that is, is absolutely fascinating to me, something that is built into creation. I read this, uh, this came from um, uh, this article, a science article that says, consider the caterpillar. If you brought a caterpillar to a biologist and asked him to analyze it and describe the DNA, just to extract the DNA, he would say, I know this looks like a caterpillar to you, but scientifically, according to every test, including its DNA, it is already fully and completely a butterfly. God has wired into a creature that looks nothing like a butterfly the behavior and attributes of a butterfly. It just hasn't matured into it yet. It already is. It's already wired in it. It's already wired in you to be the beloved child in whom God is pleased. It just requires us to mature into the recognition of that. And that's where we come in because that's what this community is for. We're invited to do this together, to learn how to live from Jesus, to learn how to love from Jesus, to learn how to lead like Jesus together. And so as we continue to worship and as we, if you want to come forward and pray, if you want to come to one of our partners to pray, if you want to stand or kneel or sit in the aisle in your seat and pray, I encourage you at some point to just reflect and meditate on these words. As you breathe in and out, you would say, I am your son. I am your beloved son. I am your beloved son in whom you are well pleased. I am your daughter. I am your beloved daughter. I am your beloved daughter in whom you are well pleased. I am your child. I am your beloved child. I am your beloved child in whom you are well pleased. Root your identity in that. Build your identity, build your life on this truth, on this foundation, on this reality. There's nothing greater. Friends, uh, let's, let's continue to worship together. Amen. 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 And as our brother Carlos said, we invite you to...